Hello there, podcast listener. Welcome to Eat Half, Walk Double. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. This show is the chronicle of my four decades in endurance sports, told through the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. And I I certainly have met my share. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Today's show is going to be great. I really have such cool friends. One of them is Jim Graham. He spent a professional career, 24 years, in journalism here in New Hampshire before becoming the Director of Leadership Communications from my alma mater, the University of New Hampshire. Now, either of those roles is podcast-worthy material, but our conversation today revolves around his five decades in endurance sports. Trail running, mountain biking, Nordic skiing, and now gravel bike racing, he's seen and done it all. And over all that time, he's learned some incredibly valuable lessons. In fact, I get him to share his top 10 tips for lifelong fitness. It's a great list. Well, without further ado, here's Jim Graham. Hey, Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Uh, thanks for having me on. I was delighted yeah. to be asked, asked to join you. Uh, it's uh, it, it, the, pleasure, the pleasure really is all mine. You know, as I was doing a little show prep uh, tonight, I actually, I actually think I've, uh, I, I've identified a weakness in my, in my show opening. You know, in my show opening, I talk about this podcast being um, sort of a reflection of the last, um, my last four decades um, in endurance sports, really told through uh, the stories uh, or told through the people uh, that I've had the opportunity to meet over the years. And I, I, I describe these people as, as the, I call it the three eyes. The people that uh, were important or are important, uh, the people that are influential, and the people that are interesting, right? So important, influential, and interesting people. That's who I have on my podcast. Now, clearly, you fit at least two of those three categories, or frankly, you might even fit all three of those categories. But as I was thinking more about thinking more about this particular discussion, I realize I'm missing an I. And that fourth I, that I think I'm probably going to have to edit my, my, my intro, that fourth I is inspiring. You know, Jim, as I, as I was thinking about, as I was thinking about you, um, and, um, you know, our conversation tonight, it dawned upon me that, um, uh, that, you know, as a 53 year old endurance athlete myself, I I mean, I'm, where do I find inspiration? And I'll, I'll be asking you about where you find inspiration a little bit, but as I think about where I find inspiration, interestingly enough, Jim, it's, I don't find not, not that I don't respect what you know the the crazy things that that my younger friends are doing um but uh it's hard for me to relate to you know the 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 accomplishments of a 20 or 30 year old or frankly even a 40 year old but but certainly but certainly 20 and 30 year olds again i have tremendous respect uh for 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 what young folks are doing but as i'm looking at you know who inspires me it's it's my elders you know, it's the yeah. it's the endurance athletes. Right. For me, like you, um, you know, you're I, I, I'm sure you, you, you'd be you, you, you'd, you'd proudly admit to being 62 years young. Right. Yeah, and, um, you know, a, as I think about it, I mean, w- one of my aspirations as an endurance athlete, you know, is, is to be as fit as you are in huh. 10 years. Well, uh, I mean, 
that's where my inspiration comes. And and you you, you and I, you and I know uh, enough people in common that uh, we, you and I could probably rattle off uh, a half dozen or so, uh, you know, folks, our our, our own our, our elders that, that that inspire us too. Um, and, and and you know, well, everyone yeah. has a story, right? About uh, about how they met. You know, the, yeah. these people that come, come into their lives and, and inspire them. Um, you know, our story of how we met yeah. uh, maybe is not maybe is not terribly unique, but it's unique. It's unique to us. I'm wondering if uh, if, if you'd be willing to tell the story about uh, how you and I met. Yeah, sure. And, and thank you for that great introduction. Uh, it's a little tangent. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. I think it was Ogden Nash who said, um, you can't stay young forever, but you can stay immature indefinitely. <laughs> and that's what I aspire to. I, I was hoping that you'd say you invited me on for my, for my dad jokes, but. Uh, well, well, well the, 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 the podcast isn't that. over, Jim. You, so you, 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 you still have plenty of time to tell a bad joke. Well, you know, in, in your invite for this, um, you had asked about how we met. I actually had to think a while. I, I feel like I've known you forever, which is a good thing. Uh, but I, I remembered it was at the 24 Hours of Great Glen uh, mountain bike race. So that's a, a nine mile circuit and you do as many loops as you can in 24 hours or 12 hours. You can do it as a solo, you can do it with teams. Um, it's kind of like the uh, quintessential New Hampshire mountain biking experience, right at the foot of Mount Washington. Beautiful course, some really challenging sections, others that are fast and flowy. Um, and I remember doing it, I was, I was turning off laps and I had, my kids were both pretty small at that point. My son was maybe like nine or 10, daughter was maybe, uh, I don't know, six or seven then. And um, I think what I was doing was riding one lap on my own. My son was there with me and he would just kind of hang out in the tent, ride one lap with me. And I went by the acidotic racing uh, tent and you guys were right alongside the trail. You had a fire going and Two things that that stuck that struck me was one I recognized a lot of old uh, I don't know guys who are really serious endurance athletes from all over New Hampshire and women, um, but also re like really friendly people I had just met over the years from different races, um, and I thought I had no idea I had never heard of acidotic racing or anything, um, and then as I was. Um, watching the races with my son afterwards, you guys were cheering on everybody. It wasn't just people who had acidotic shirts on. It wasn't just the guys who were winning. And, and on acidotic, there's certainly some top, top athletes. You had you were really enthused for people who were struggling, you know, really hurting. People who might not have been in great shape and they were giving it 100%. And that, that just really um, impressed me. And I, I knew a couple of your members, um, might have been Tim Pfeiffer, uh, Jason Massa, maybe some of those guys who are hanging out. Jeff Bilchield might have been hanging out there. And I started talking, I, what are you guys all doing here? And they were all part of Acidotic. And um, they introduced me to you. And I remember seeing your name and results and hearing about um, this club you had going. And really just hung out there the rest of the, that weekend. And I asked, if, hey, would you mind if my son hung out with you while I do a lap? And and he did. And you guys could not have been more welcoming. He was a pretty shy, quiet kid. And here we see he's hanging out with all these like really cool guys. 
as women. So I was so I was uh, lucky to uh, get nominated to join Acidotic, and that really opened up a whole new world for me. Yeah, for um, for 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 a number of years. Um, I mean, it it, it might have even been it, it might have even been five, six, seven consecutive years. Um, Acidotic Racing, the event management company uh, that I started, um, which eventually um, uh, also became an endurance racing team. Um, you know, we, I think maybe the first year we were at the 24 hours of Great Glen, we might have had one or two teams. And I'm talking about teams of four. So yeah. I think uh, um, early on, it was just a 24 hour race. They hadn't, they hadn't added the 12 hour race yet. So okay. it's just a 24 hour race. Uh, and you could do it solo. You could do it as a team of two, I think, or, you, or you could do it as a team of four, something like that. Anyway, we, we, um, we went up there that first year again, maybe with two teams of four. Um, but by, by the last year that we did it, and again, this was maybe a after five or six or seven consecutive years, I think that last year that we were there, uh, I, I want to say we had we had something like thirty or forty members. Wow. Um, in, in fact, <laughs> we we had we had by far become the largest team that was represented there, and so. Um, and so, uh, a few years before, uh, we stopped participating, um, <laughs> we had worked out an arrangement with the, with the event organizers, uh, that we would get the, the, the premier, uh, camping spot, which was right along the meadows on the other side of the, on the other side of the, of the auto road, you know, as you can sort of picture the, um, well, I'll call them fairgrounds, but they're not fairgrounds. But as you as you picture the grounds there at the base of of of, uh, of Mount Washington along the auto road, there's a big, big open field as you're driving, you know, as you're on the auto road, going to head up the mountain. On the left hand side is a there's a so there's a huge field. It's probably what would you say, Jim? The size of maybe three football fields, four well, football yeah, fields. It's yeah, it's an enormous field, um, and that's where the majority of people would camp because the 24 Hours of Great Glen was really a weekend mountain bike festival. Right, and folks right. would folks would would show up there on Friday. The race would kick off uh, Saturday, and it would go all the way all the way through through Sunday. So it really was a it was a weekend thing, right? Um, well, uh, again, toward the end of our time there. Um, again, because our team had, had grown, the number of people that we would bring to the event kind of grew, uh, somewhat organically over the years. Um, and we were sending the, we were bringing the largest contingent. Uh, again, we got the, we got the primary camping spot, which was on the right side of the auto road in a little small spot. There was really only right. room for us and, uh, and maybe one other, like, in fact, um, I think the last year we were there. Um, we had a neighbor who, uh, uh, he, Jay, uh, Dietershagen, um, and I apologize to Jay if I just butchered his last name, but, um, Jay was actually the 24 hour solo winner. He was oh, yeah. there. Interestingly enough, uh, Jay was there with, with, at that, at that year, he was there with, with, uh, one support person, one, oh, wow. one. One one crew member, and you know whose crew member was, his mother, oh, his God. mom. His it was. I'll never forget it. The rest uh, of again, we, we, 
yeah, we, we, we had just, I mean, we really dominated this little, this little camping area, right? That little small, little, little, little part of the meadow. Like we just took the whole thing over, but it was just enough room for Jay and his mom who didn't know us from Adam to, to take over a little spot. And of course, you know, to your point, we, we, we've got some, not only do we have uh, outstanding, outstanding athletes, I think we've got equally outstanding people that, that race for us, um, uh, present company included. Um, And, and so, you know, our, our team members, uh, when they weren't riding, they pitched in and helped Jay's mom, this, again, this, this guy that was riding the 24 solo who, who would end up, going on and 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 win it that year um yeah the, the thing that really stood out for me about the team one was just the you know the really friendliness and, and, and really all abilities and, and, and that wasn't just a line that was serious um you know one thing you learn if you've been in this these sports for a while is you're going to have years where you're really way back you know you're not healthy for you might be sick you might have a job issue family issue you're not going to be always fast you know and you're going to get old anyway so um and it was a real genuine feeling like that. I had been at that point, I was probably in my mid forties. So I had been on some teams that were all about competition and results. And, um, they, you know, they tend to mean less to yours or it's less how you measure your satisfaction, I guess. Um, so when I, when I went back home that weekend, I, I looked at the website and what I loved is that there was a requirement to give back. You know, at that point, I had already, I'd actually helped start the White Mountain Milers Running Club, um, uh, was president of that for a few years, president of the uh, Mount Washington Valley Nordic Club, um, always believed in volunteering to keep these races going. Um, so that was a big thing. And then, but I, I have to throw on this story, it's, it's one of my favorite stories of my life, really. Um, my son that night, I was pretty much done, it was like nine o'clock or something like that. And uh, maybe 10 o'clock at night, I was, you know, doing the 12 and my son wanted to do one lap by himself. And he was like nine years old, you know, or 10 years old. So I put on, the, you know, the big headlamps on his bike and um, I ran around the course to, you know, catch him and just make sure he was okay. And, um, you know, what was great about that race too, is there, he said throughout the race, there were older riders who were like catching up to him who would ride with him for a little bit. And, um, what I remember with the Asadata crew, we were hanging out on the plunge. This is a really steep, gnarly downhill with some water bars that are like mini jumps almost. It's really hard to con- control yourself going down this thing. A lot of wipeouts. And at night, you know, people are out there lying both sides of the hill. Some people have a few beers. And I was sitting there waiting for him. Of course, I'm nervous as hell. And you know, out of the pitch dark at like 1130 at night, this little nine-year-old kid comes bombing down the thing and he cleaned it and everybody went crazy. And, awesome. you know, for me to hear that crowd and to watch him go there, it's like, I have that video in my head. I'll never forget. It was a great night. And the Asadotic team was all there and really psyched for him. They didn't know him from Adam before that day. It was great. Well, you, <laughs> you, you described that section of the course as the plunge. Um, I remember it um, by a by a different name, which I think uh, probably will emphasize your story. Um, we always referred to that spot as the boneyard <laughs> because of how many epic wipeouts. In fact, 
I'm sure you're not surprised to hear that over the years, um, we actually had several acidotic racing members um, go uh, over the bars, uh, over oh. the handlebars in those areas um, with, 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 you know, with, with all measure of, uh, you know, uh, concussion and separated shoulder and oh, broken God, bikes. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not too proud to say that, of all the years that I raced the 24 hours of Great Glen, probably, I don't know, I'll conservatively say I probably did 50 laps of that course. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I probably only rode the boneyard once or twice. Oh. Every other time <laughs> I walked around like the, luckily the race organizers always had a, like a little walk around spot. Like if you really didn't have the nerve um, or the skill, you could walk around now. Right. Now to be fair, um, if I was fresh and you and I were just going out to ride mountain bikes for an hour, I almost certainly would have attempted it. But within, yeah. within the context of a 24 hour race, knowing that, you know, this is lap one of maybe six laps you're going to have to do over right. the race for me, rarely was it ever worth the risk of going over the bars and turning a four person team into a three person. Right. <laughs> right. You know, I'm kind of old school, and I, I, I always get a kick out of uh, riding my old hardtail down that. And I, I, I think I dabbed once going down, I, but I've cleaned it pretty much every time. And, you know, I'm not a b beautiful technician, but I'll get through things. And uh, I think part of it is I'm, I'm actually pretty careful, so I'm not hitting it at, you know, a million miles an hour. There's, I like yeah. my line. and Yeah, there's no – I say my goal now is, is – Maybe the past 20 years, you know, three, three goals I have are don't get hurt, don't get hurt, don't get hurt. So. <laughs> um, you, you know, you, 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 you mentioned, uh, you mentioned our, our race team, uh, acidotic racing, uh, and, um, you know, this, this sort of serendipitous story of how we, you know, of how we, we, you and I connected together and, and, you know, have since forged, a you know, a, a a decade plus long friendship you know the kids say jim that your your vibe attracts your tribe right yeah. so um do you do you really think it was just fate that uh you happened to run into us uh at the 24 hours at great glen yeah. or or do you or do you think you know or do you think our vibe was really just a reflection of your vibe and that eventually we were going to connect. I mean, what's, what's your take on your vibe well, attracts your tribe? I, I guess I'd go with, I, I guess I'd go with the uh, second one that you, that, that we'd eventually connect. And I, I find this, especially in the, the endurance sports world, and especially within that, within the Nordic sports world, because, um, you know, I'm a big Nordic skier and, and that's one sport where almost all the other sports are going to help it in some way. So you meet people who are doing really uh, remarkable things all over the place. Um, and they tend to be, you know, these sports are hard, you know, they require a lot of sacrifice. You're by yourself a lot. Um, you can be a top level performer and be very selfish, um, and be very self-centered. And I'm sure we've run into people like that. Um, so I, I wouldn't, if, if I hadn't seen people, I, I knew I wouldn't have hung out with you guys. So, or, or if I didn't, you know, I, I remember kind of standing back and just watching you guys because I was I was a little skeptical about getting involved with any teams at that point. I had plenty going on in my life with little kids and, you know, job and commute and 
all those things. And uh, uh, last thing I wanted was like a, a big macho kind of totally focused on, on uh, results and, and, and podium type of club and uh, to sit back and just kind of watch you guys. And um, I think you can tell the character of a team and people by how loudly they're cheering the people who are at the back and who are struggling, um, but who are given 100%. You know, it, it, it's like acidotic. Uh, well, really, it's not just Hassanah, but it's, it's you and those people. They're cheering on the effort, regardless of whether that's, you know, super fast per mile pace or people who are just happy to finish a lap without collapsing, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I, I think to a person, we all, we all understand that, um, you know, everyone's out there for the same reason, right? Everyone's out there to... Uh, you know, to, to, to lean in on the experience and to, you know, to, to, to give it everything they've got. Now, sometimes natural talent suggests that some people are going to finish toward the front of the pack. And, right. and, and the, the opposite of that is true, but that, that, you know, the people that are riding off the back, it's, it's not as though they're not, they're not trying as hard as the people riding in front. It's just, right. yeah, it's just a different scenario. So the 24 hours are great, Glenn was obviously not your first your first foray into athletics uh right. you, you 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 have a long history uh in athletics I'm, I'm 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 really curious to hear about uh sort of hear about your your life in athletics um you know start as early back uh, as, as as you want and um and let's yeah let's kind of let's kind of talk a little bit about how your uh how your life in athletics has evolved uh Boy, over, um, over the time yeah, I guess it started as a kid. Um, my dad was big into hiking. He he grew up in New York in New York City, you know, dirt poor kid in the, the depression. Um, got a job in Massachusetts and and made some friends who were into hiking, and got me into hiking when I was really a little kid. So by the time I was eight years old, I had been to uh, stayed overnight at all the AMC huts, and um, and you know those were the old days. We had a canvas pack and you know maybe leather work boots or or you know uh keds sneakers i remember and uh yeah it, it was it was just a different time then and we would sleep in uh we went backpacking quite a bit um and i was one of six kids i had five sisters so it was like my dad and i went out he was a, a national caliber canoe racer in the 50s when canoe racing was actually a huge thing in the U.S. And he was also a rower in college and, and very, very good. Um, so he got me into canoe racing when I was a kid. I loved the effort. I didn't necessarily like having my dad in the back of the boat shouting orders at me. He was a very That's macho fair. kind of guy. That's fair. But um, I, I did love being outdoors. So I guess that's where it kind of started. I, I got pretty active in Boy Scouts. I loved the hiking and just being out there going long days. Um, so that was that was big. I, and it, even in, in Scouts, we had like uh, cross-country running races. I loved those. We had like canoe kayaking races. Those were great. Um, so that morphed into running in high school. I was actually not a very good high school runner at all. I was on a team and i grew up in foxborough mass um and the team there was fantastic i mean it would win the states every year in fact when i when i was in eighth grade so i wasn't running on high school yet but the high school team won the new england's with five foxborough high kids holding their hands as they crossed the line in first that's new england so an excellent program 
So all through high school, my if, if I managed to score a point, which was like I was the fifth guy on the team, that was like huge for me. <laughs> so, so I wasn't that good in high school, at least compared to those guys. Um, if I had any strength, it was maybe middle distance. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a little bit bigger. I'm not, a, I'm not a really light, lightweight person. So I'm, right now I'm probably 170, 165, and I was probably not much, maybe 160 in high school. Um, so, and I was, I was pretty fast half miler, you know, I, you know, flirt with about two minutes for a half mile. Um, but then, you know, went to college and I went to UMass and uh, this is actually a good thing being kind of not, not good enough to make a D1 team. So there would be like, I remember my freshman year of the 27 guys who went out for the team, seven would actually travel to, to meets. I never went to a meet, you know, and the story I tell is by the end of the season, the coach came by me one day and he said, Nice workout today, Tom. I mean, Mike. I mean, Joe. <laughs> I realized after like two months, you didn't know my name. That probably wasn't a good sign. That I was make well, it. well, at least at least it wasn't a sign that you were on the travel list. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> so there were obviously that many guys. There were others like me, and in those days, there were a lot of races in that area. So a bunch of us started doing local road races, and. We may not have been D1 runners, but boy, we can do really well in the local road races. And, and those days weren't 5Ks, but they seemed to be 10Ks all the time, like every weekend, especially in the Springfield, Northampton, Amherst area, there was some type of race. Yeah, Jim, so, ju just just to interject for a moment, I, I find that I find what you just described really fascinating, that um, there was a time in which the 10K distance might have been the most popular road racing distance oh, right I, yeah and because now now it's i mean not that it's impossible to find 10k road races but what's the yeah. most popular racing distance now on the road it's 5k oh, you right? can't there, find a 10k it's hard yeah. to find one I, you know they're not that many but in those days i don't remember 5ks even being a thing until maybe the late 80s um mid 80s but before that no way you just this didn't exist. Yeah, I, I I find that really 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 fascinating. So, um, you 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 get out of college, right? And yeah, now you know. I lived in Foxborough for a little, almost a year, and um, uh, I worked. I was a newspaper reporter for most of my career. So I, I got a job working for a little weekly newspaper in North Conway, uh, New Hampshire. Had a family friend who had this uh, one-room log cabin in Jackson, really um, rustic log cabin. This wasn't like a kit-built home. He, he built it himself, and it had a uh, oil drum that was converted into a wood stove. Uh, leaky walls. You could put a candle up next to the wall, and it would blow out. <laughs> so I, I lived there. I moved up there when I was, I think, 23, and I stayed there until I was about 30. And... Um, yeah, I'll tell you, it was, it was hard to meet people, but when I did, um, I met people who are still my best friends, uh, um, you know, all over the Mount Washington Valley. And and through running, there, was a, there wasn't a running club yet, but they had weekly fun runs at Whitaker Woods. And I met a ton, I met a bunch of people through there who I'm still in touch with. And that was a great series. The, the Whitaker Woods Fun Run, it's right, in, right next to downtown North Conway. And you can either run a flat mile or you can run a 5K course. And what I loved about that weekly schedule was it, it made racing not so important because you, 
you know, before that, I wouldn't race all that much, especially, you know, college, there were races, but, you know, you'd get very wound up about them. I would get very anxious about races and, and, and nervous about when you start racing every week, they just don't matter as much. So you could show up one week and hammer as hard as you want. The next week you'd say, I'm really taking it easy today and just, you know, run with some of your buddies. So it was, or you could, they would time the first mile. So you might like bust out a first mile and then like immediately shut it down and go to eight minute mile pace or something. So you, so you, 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 you continued um, the, you continued running um, yep. as a, as, as probably a mechanism to, to maintain fitness and also uh, as a, as a, as a competitive outlet. What I'm, what I'm interested uh, in um, uh, as I'm, as I'm kind of piecing this story together, which by the way, I, I haven't heard these details before, but as I'm piecing the story together, so you're living in the Mount Washington Valley, like literally you're living in the heart of the white mountains. Yeah. Now as a kid, right. You spent a lot of time hiking with your dad. Did you, did you hike during that period of time? And you, well, you yeah, lived yeah. In, the, in the heart of the white mountains. Were you a hiker then too? Oh yeah. I hiked a lot and I would do a lot of long distance. I wasn't into skiing yet though. Uh, so uh, kind of fun. It, really the only thing I did was hike and, and run. I didn't, I, I had a bike, but it wasn't a very good bike. Uh, and uh, the way I got into so, so many of these other sports, I was out running one day in, uh, in Jackson up near um, heading up one of the big hills toward black mountain. And it was a gorgeous day. It's January. I think we had gotten like nine inches of snow the night before. It was powdery snow, bluebird sky. And I was out running and a car pulled up next to me. And it was this old guy, Earl Stetson. Um, he was kind of a legend in the Mount Washington Valley. And he had done the Whitaker Woods Fun Runs. At that point, he was probably in his late 60s, early 60s. And he rolled down the window and he's like, Graham, what the hell are you doing out running on a day like this? And I was like, just go for a run. He's like, do you ski at all? He's like, yeah, I, I've skied a little bit. And he's like, bullshit, you don't know what you're doing. You know, why don't you meet me tomorrow morning down at the touring center? I'll take you cross-country skiing. And so that's how it all started. He took me out the next day and kicked my butt. And I realized I didn't know a damn thing about skiing. And it opened up a whole new world to me because he was also into biking and um Real, real training for cross-country skiing. He was a world master's champion, um, uh, Nordic skier. And, and his wife, Linda Stetson, also a uh, world-level uh, skier, master skier. And they both were fantastic with technique. It was just in the earliest days when the skate technique or freestyle technique was starting to, to come on. Um, so we played around with that a lot. And of course, in the Mount Washington Valley, just being into that type of sport connects you with so many people. There's so many, in, in those days anyway, a lot of national caliber or, you know, super good college skiers who were like close college, living at home, you know, working, whatever, but still skiing like, like crazy. So yeah, it's a great place to be. Yeah. I mean, not only, not only is the Mount Washington Valley uh, a great place to be a trail and mountain runner, uh, it would also seem to be a great place to be a Nordic skier as well with Whitaker Woods and Jackson and, exactly. uh, and uh, Great Glen. Um, yeah. right. I mean, <laughs> you don't really have to go very far, uh, to, to probably get great Nordic skiing. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, I, again, just, I find it, I find it really, really fascinating, um, that, um, you know, that we, we, we sort of, we sort of wind up there. Well, th there was another, there was another race, um, that was, uh, in, 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 in fairly close proximity to you at that time. 
I'm wondering if there was overlap um, uh, here. Um, the Mount Washington Road Race, right? The famous, uh, the famous race up the auto road, um, which is held every June. Um, you've done that race a handful of times. Um, yeah. when, when did you, when did you, do you remember, do you remember, remember the first year you did it? When, when did you start doing the Mount of, Washington road? Race? Yeah. People might find this kind of funny when I lived up there. I don't think I actually ever ran it. I, I don't think I ran it until I moved down to Concord, New Hampshire. Oh, when, interesting. I, when I lived there, I was a pretty good runner. Uh, you know, I, I was running, I don't know, uh, Probably around 120, low 120s for half marathons, which there were more of in those days too. You know, I'd sneak under, I'd be in the 35s, 36 for 10K. So not super, but pretty pretty solid. And I, I would go up, I remember my Washington Road Race would come around, I'd go up and hike and think, there's no way I can do that. These guys are crazy. And I was, you know, like I said, okay runner in those days. And uh and as I watched them, you know, I remember a couple of years, I would just watch the leaders go by and just say, it's nuts and keep on hiking. And one year I, I stopped and I watched the whole field go by and I thought, I, I, I could keep up with at least a couple of those people. <laughs> so, so I came back. I think that was probably the first year I did. It was maybe the first year I lived in Concord, New Hampshire. And uh, yeah, I fell in love with the race. You know, not a naturally gifted hill runner by any stretch. You know, they say Mount Washington your best should be about what your half marathon time is. And my best in Mount Washington is at 127. And I think that same year, I ran 181 maybe that, that a few months before that and a half. So, um, but I, it, it, it's like, do what you love. And I, I absolutely love it. You know, I love, I love rising above the tree line, seeing the mountains around you kind of get lower and lower. And then before you know it, you're looking down on wildcat. Um, and, it's a cool feeling to realize that oh, I'm actually doing this. Yeah. I, I so, yeah. So <laughs> I, I've had the opportunity like you to, uh, to not only uh, run to the top of Mount Washington in the Mount Washington road race, but also hike to the top of Mount Washington, right? Just as a, as a, as a, as a day hiker. Um, I know which one is harder, um, <laughs> but for you, what, what's more rewarding for you to, for you to, get to the top of Mount Washington um, by running on the auto road in an hour and a half or to, um, you know, hike with your, with your kids uh, or your no. wife or friends and have it take you four hours to get to the top. Well, that's a good question. Maybe, maybe an odd answer is I don't recall actually hiking to the top maybe in the last 30 years. I, I tend to avoid it. I, I really like long days high up. Uh, you know, I've done the Prezi Traverse, traverse a bunch, uh, or I'll do like a loop around like Bootspur and then down Lion's Head, but I'll tend to avoid the, the top because it's so crowded. Um, but I've, I've biked up Mount Washington five times, and then I did the, um, the Sea to Summit, which finished um, at the top of Mount Washington. That was a race that started on the seacoast, 12 miles sea kayak, 90 mile bike, and then six and a half miles of Mount Washington. And you go up Tarkman Ravine. And out of all the times I've been up there, I would say the Sea to Summit would be probably the most satisfying because it, it, it you're just, you know, physically and emotionally just dead and spent. And to realize you're going to finally, you know, when you're riding your bike up Route 16, you can see the mountain and you think, 
there's just, there's no way. <laughs> and then, you know, a few hours later, you see that you're coming, you're hiking up to the top. It's like, wow, what a great feeling. Yeah, very satisfying. Um, I, I'm 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 always I'm always interested in um, in in folks that have been quote unquote in the game for a while. And when I say in the game, I mean you know being an endurance athlete. Um, when folks have been in the game uh, for uh, for a while, I, you know I I think I I think probably safe to assume that you've been an endurance athlete for the better part of the last five decades, right? Yeah. Um, how has your interest in endurance sport changed? Because I, I mean, I, I can I mean, I only kind of can just relate it to myself. My my competitive interest when I was in when I was in my twenties is a lot different than my competitive interest now in my fifties. But for you, Jim, um, you know how how have if if your competitive interests uh, have changed at all? How have they changed? Um, you know, during the last five days. That's a great question. A tough one to answer. I like to think so. I almost feel like I've had two lifetimes in endurance sports. One before I had a pretty serious knee injury when I was 29. Um, and that changed my perspective. So since then, it, I'd say all my racing is really, it may sound corny, but it's all bounded on gratitude. I'm so grateful to just be out there. Um, results really, it's not like they, they don't matter at all, but they, what really matters to me is, um, is effort and experience. You know, I'd rather have a slow race and in a beautiful place or feel like I, I left it all out there um, when I finish than to have a PR and feel like I screwed up or I, I, I my strategy wasn't right or, um, or I just went in with a, a crappy attitude. <laughs> so really, I, I love challenging myself, new experiences, keeping things fresh. Um, the 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 I'm I'm way way chiller now before races uh, I'm really super relaxed I love racing now when I was younger I was more focused on results and I get really nervous before races um, wound up you wouldn't want to be around me now I I love it I'm not I'm not wound up at all before I I'm excited uh, you know I love I love the feeling of winding up with a number on and especially at age sixty two I have to remind myself like Wow, you're actually 62 and you're still doing that. This is pretty cool. So, so you 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 have you have uh, you you have a son and a daughter who um, uh, who are really high level competitive endurance athletes in in their own right. Um, I'm curious, um, you know, as a 62 year old endurance athlete, right? Having for you, having you know, kind of seen and done maybe not it all, but pretty close to it all yeah. your perspective, uh, on racing, right. has changed so dramatically. You just, you, 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 you just verbalized that, um, you, you've got young athletes now, <laughs> your, 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 your son and daughter. Um, and, um, how do you translate your years of wisdom and experience to them? Because I'm sure well, maybe I'm maybe I'm not sure, but I, my, I would presume that, um, like like most young people, um, they are highly driven, uh, and 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 very competitive. And I wonder, do you see a little bit of of your early self in them? And if so, what lessons 
are you able to convey to them as a 62 year old endurance athlete, or is that not applicable to, to, to young, to young people? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, boy, we could have a whole separate show on that. Uh, so I, I didn't have kids. So I was a little older. So I was 42 when my son was born. So I'd been around a little bit and, um, I actually never really pushed my kids to, to race. And, um, I, and my kids actually are very hesitant to race. So I, I would say one thing I've really prided myself on is just being with them and getting them out. Um, and, and accepting that uh, kind of letting them set the tone and the pace for how we were going to go. So, one story I tell is um, my son's a good a good skier. When he was pretty young, we had a whole day set aside and make sure Chris and my daughter were um, set up at home. And we went up to Waterville Valley. It was going to be a dad's Sunday. We we're going to do a nice ski. And he was maybe, I don't know, seven or eight years old, probably seven, maybe six. I don't know. But, but young, yeah, pretty young. <laughs> we did about a 15-minute loop. He was done. <laughs> and, and he just wanted to have hot chocolate. And he just said, I don't want to ski anymore. I'm tired. And I just sat there and said, this is the moment where you just said, okay, great. Let's just have some hot chocolate. And that's your workout for the day. And to not show them that you're bummed out, that, that it didn't, you know, you just have to accept it and say, okay, that's fine. Um, you know, things like letting them lead on 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 when we're out there and just letting them really set the pace and the tone in terms of racing. It's kind of funny when, when my son was in middle school, he was, a he, he had skied with me. He was a really good little skier, um, cross country skier. And, uh, he really didn't want to race. And I, I talked to the middle school coach here in Concord about it. He said, you know, it's fine if he doesn't race, but I'll, he said, I'll tell you, there's only, there's only two things your kid's going to do. That's, important in middle or high school racing and that's get on the bus with their friends to practice into the meets and get on the bus with their friends when they leave to practice in the meets and he said that's where they're going to make their friends where they're going to hang out where they're going to enjoy themselves and that was really wise it really proved true that it was really more about the social connection if they're having fun and they're with their friends they're going to naturally want to do better and so i really haven't I'll push that. I have invited them to races with me, or we've taken them and, um, uh, you know, raced with them. And like, uh, there's a series called the uh, Bill Coke Festival or Bill Coke Races. Um, so that the whole the whole emphasis of that program is on fun. It's not about results. Um, so they, it's not unusual for them to have like obstacle races or um, different relay races that are just just fun, different kind of wacky. And, uh, and the kids just have a, have a blast. So, yeah, it's not a very competitive piece. They're both, they're both pretty competitive, but they're not obsessed about their results. Um, and we'll see their, you know, they'll set their own, uh, their own level with it. Do you feel like they, do you feel like they learned that from you without you explicitly, without ex you explicitly kind of, Describing your own, you know, experience and 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 approach to endurance sports uh, yeah. where you are now, or like, do you think it just rubbed off on them, or did you well, actually I, have a conversation about um, like it's important not to be overly competitive? Yeah, I think the main contribution is that my wife and I really um, nurtured a love of being outdoors and active in them. That's really the, it. Really, it's just that, 
any competitive thing probably comes as much from their peers. By the time they're in, you know, middle and high school, you don't have a lot of influence. So then what I do make sure they know is that I struggle just as much as they do, that, that it's not easy for me, that there are days I just don't want to get out the door. There are times I'm certainly, they hear me ache and groan around the house. Um, they hear me when I'm really excited that I did something, even if I wasn't, didn't finish great. Like the, like, a big ski race I did this year at the Berkey, um, but I was really excited about it, you know, or when I I come back and I feel like, oh, boy, that was way over my head. I don't know if I should have done that. That They see that it's just a human condition. You know, you, you don't always nail it. And so, you know, hopefully I set a good example for them. Yeah. You know, my, um, of course, my, my, my dad was a, was a football coach for, well, been a football coach for my entire adult life. So, yeah. uh, so athletics was an important thing for us, for my brother and I, when, when we were kids and, and, um, you know, as, as, as you were talking, I kind of got to think, you know, we, I used the expression earlier that your, your vibe attracts your tribe. And I think that's true as adults, but I, but I think it's flipped around for kids, meaning your tribe influences your vibe. That's why as parents, um, you know, while, for, for my wife and I, you know, we, we didn't push our kids into athletics, right? I, I, we strongly encourage them um, to participate in athletics, quite honestly, Jim, whether it was athletics or, or some other extracurricular activity. The point is that um, uh, if you can get your, your kids into some extracurricular activity, right? Yeah. They may, you know, your kids may not know what their vibe is at that age, right. but, but they're, they, the tribe has a vibe, right? Yeah. And um, and I, I'm sure you've had this experience, like like my wife and I have too. And that is, um, you know, for kids, there's no better vibe than an athletic tribe. Now, right. th- there certainly are some rotten apples <laughs> within yeah. every tribe, but generally speaking, um, right? It, it's uh, it's it's not a bad place for kids to you know to learn and to grow you know, in, in athletics. In addition to what that middle school coach said to me, uh, Tim Pfeiffer, who's a, you know, good trail runner and um, you know, multi-sport athlete, his, his kids are a little older than mine. And um, I remember seeing him when my son was young, his daughter was on the high school Nordic team. And we, we were out skiing on the Nordic high school Nordic team was just getting done. And I asked him, I said, you know, my son's really not into racing. I don't think he wants to go and, and do middle school or high school and all. And he's, Tim said, you know, the good thing about this sport is that the type of kids that do Nordic are the type of kids you want your kid to hang out with. And he was so true. You know, that it's, it's a hard sport. It's not super popular, but you're outside. Um, if you go to any of the races, you'll see kids who are really happy just to finish a 5K course without stopping. And then you'll see kids who are future Olympians. And they're all getting you. And then if you see them hanging out afterwards, you couldn't tell who the top kid is on the team, really, just by watching the, the body language. Um, they're all hanging out, having a great time. And even after the race, you can tell they're still out skiing. They're making little jumps and they're, you know, goofing around on their skis and they're just having a blast and that's what it's all about so yeah, yeah. i mean right so so true it's i mean it's 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 much less about the performance and it's more about the relationships that the kids form 
um, and, 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 and the things that they learn and, 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 you know, how to deal with adversity, uh, how to be a good winner, how to be a good loser, how to be a good teammate, you know, all of those things (laughs) translate to our adult lives, right? Because at some point for many of us, um, you know, we, we may no longer be on an athletic team, but we're part of a, we're, 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 we're part of a team on a, on a newspaper or part, part of a team of writers or reporters yeah. or a part of a team of, uh, of architects or whatever, whatever in the world yeah. it happens to be. Well, at, at, at 62 years of age, Jim, again, I, as, I, as, I, as I told you at the outset, um, I'm always inspired by, by the things that, uh, that you have going on and, and uh, how active uh, that, that you have remained. Um, you know, what's, what's next for you? You're 62. What's, what's 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 yeah. Jim Graham up to? What's Jim Graham got on his radar now? What are you? Well, what, what, yeah. So what's your next big thing? My, my, I'm in the middle of it right now. I, I bought my first gravel bike last July after years of being somewhat skeptical if I'd really enjoy it. Um, wondering if there were enough options to ride close to close to my house here in Concord. I didn't want to like get in the car to have to go someplace to work out. Um, I had I. I had a, a, a road bike that I, I was finding I was only using on weekends real early in the morning because it took the, you know, all the things you hear about traffic, things like that. Um, still mountain bike quite a bit, but uh, where we are in Concord, the trails are pretty gnarly. There's a lot of uh, old uh, gravel quarries. So the trails tend to be real chunky and very technical. And so they can kind of beat you up. And, uh, I really enjoyed riding some of the more flowy systems like green woodlands on a mountain bike or kingdom trails, which I find really flowy. Um, you know, you don't have to get off your bike much if, if at all. Um, and gravel biking seemed like that, except you could go even further. And so I got a gravel bike last July um, with the stimulus check, by the way, <laughs> which was great. Thank you. Thank you. U.S. government. Uh, and, Boy, it's opened up a whole new world for me. I, I, I love that I don't know a damn thing about it. Um, it's biking, yeah, but there there are some different things about you know bike setup, tires, uh, gearing, um, uh, maybe a little bit of bike handling. You know, a high speed going into like mud and things like that. Um, I just love that it's it's all brand new. The vibe of the of I've done maybe four events now. Overall, the vibe is extremely welcoming. Um, you know, I've, I've met people on the bike in the middle of some of these events that I'm now in touch with and we're planning to get together and ride. So um, I, I love that. I, last year, the first time, I, the first real long ride I did, did I, I did the Vermont um, Overland course by myself because I had signed up for the race and I was nervous if I could do the distance. It was it's 50 miles and like 7,000 feet of climbing. So I got a little cheapo GPS device and I went over to a Scutney and I did the ride and I still being way out there by myself, trying to figure out where the trails and logging roads went. That alone was a great adventure. You know, you'd pop out on a road every now and then. And there was a store I stopped at and got lunch in and there were some monster hills that were, that were intimidating, but you know, I found I could make it. And uh, yeah, so I'm really enjoying that now. Uh, this Saturday, I'm riding the Muddy Onion in um, Montpelier, Vermont. It's a 40 miler, a little bit less vertical. Uh, then I've got a couple other, the Rangers, I'm doing Vermont 50, uh, Vermont 50, I hope. I hope we'll get in for that. And then uh, Vermont Overland again. And 
yeah, so it's a whole new world. I, I love it. It's quiet out there. Um, the events have all been, people have been extremely friendly at the events. Um, I'm, I'm not really great, but I have a, I have a great time. I'm loving that. Yeah, so that's yeah, been great. And then um, lately, so I, I just signed up yesterday for the Berkey. So that's a 50 or 50K or 55K ski race in Wisconsin. I, for years and years, I had kind of poo-pooed it. I thought it was overhyped event. Did it for the first time two years ago and fell in love with it. It's it's the Boston Marathon, Chicago, New York, all rolled into one. If if you're a Nordic skier, um, far northern Wisconsin, what a great great vibe. Uh, uh, truly special. It's hard it's hard to explain to people who haven't been there, but um, I I loved the race and um, I haven't done really long distance races like that in, in a while. Um, so you know, I'm hoping to improve my results a little bit. Um, that's a race where you, the first year you do, you have to, they have like eight waves. So you have to start out way in the back. So hopefully the idea is to move up a little bit each year. So you, it's a little less crowded and you can kind of just ski free, but that, that's, that I'm really loving. So those are, those are the, let's say gravel biking and maybe thinking more long-term about races as opposed to, you know, when my kids were younger, I would hop into races when it didn't conflict with their schedule. So now I can look forward a little bit more and then, yeah. uh, yeah, I, I, I was gonna say I, I just I just find it I find it um, bo both fascinating and I'll get back to that I word inspiring that you could continue to reinvent yourself, you know, at the yeah, age of yeah. sixty two, where where most people, you know, at that point in their in their lives are kind of stuck in their ways and like yeah. this is the way I this is the way this is what I'm doing because this is what I've always done and this is the way I've always done it. It's, um, it's amazing. I, I mean, there's it, there are incredible lessons. Jim, yeah, in, it's, in it's your experience. Of, you know, how you define, you know, really it's how you use your time, right? I, I, before the podcast, I was interested in this. I, I looked at my, I used Strava as my training log and I got in 592 hours last year. I almost, um, not quite half, maybe, maybe a little more than a third of that was walking. I, I have a dog. I walk the dog maybe three to four miles a day, uh, most, most days. So I realized um, she just turned five and I realized I probably walked 4,000 miles with her. You know, I could sit home. I could put her out on a leash. I could just let her go out to the yard and poop and come back in. Or I could wake up in the morning, have some coffee, go walk around the woods with her. And that keeps me active. I, I think people underestimate the benefit of those really easy, I won't call them workouts, but just being active as opposed to sitting there. Um, I looked at Another stat before we got on that the, the average American, not on work, but on their phone, you know, I call it recreation screen time on their phone, it's four and a half hours a day on their phone. I haven't had cable TV subscription. In, I think we got it for the last Olympics for a couple of weeks, but, but basically I haven't watched TV in 40 years. Uh, I, I don't know, like the, the shows people talk about at, at work, I've never seen, you know, West Wing Friends, uh, cheers. I've never seen any of those. You know, um, uh, I hope you don't disown me, but the Super Bowl, yeah, you know, I, I've missed a bunch of Super Bowls. It's a great day to go skiing. Uh, nobody's out on the trails. You know, it's, it's pretty. I, I will, I, I will, I will not hold that against you. Um, even though in the, in the Dunn household, we, we, we talk about the three F's family, <laughs> fun, and football. <laughs> right? in in that order family fun right. football um right. i i i i absolutely I, <laughs> I absolutely will will not hold that will not hold that against you well, um, well here, 
there's a dynamic with the with the watching that I, I find interesting. A lot of I'm sure a lot of people who are athletes and work in, you know, maybe more conventional work settings would relate to this. That um, I I don't really talk much about what I do at work because a lot of people aren't. I don't think I don't expect them to care that I did a race or I did some big long ride over the weekend. But the times that come up where if they see me limping around and I'll say, well, I, I rode 50 miles yesterday on my bike, they'll say you're crazy or like. God, you're so dedicated. And I'll tell them, like, I'm working out an average of an hour to an hour and a half a day. That includes walking the dog. And you're saying that I'm dedicated. You're watching five and six hours of TV a day. And nobody says, God, you're a dedicated TV. Right. You know, boy, you must have to sacrifice so much to get that much time up to watch TV. Um, so I just don't watch TV. I replace it with something else. You know, well, so. it's, I, I mean, it's, it, it's a matter of how you spend your time, right? I mean, yeah. I, um, I mean, I for for many years, I, I worked in a in a clinical setting. Um, I mean, I was also coaching athletes a little bit on the side, but I my 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 primary uh, my primary occupation was as a clinical exercise physiologist in cardiac and pulmonary rehab. Uh, and every day I went to work, uh, I, uh, my job was to convince people who did not want to exercise that they needed to exercise. Um, and you know, we, we always would talk about um, uh, roadblocks and barriers, right? Roadblocks and barriers to participation, roadblocks and barriers to becoming a regular exerciser. And one of the legitimate or maybe maybe not so legitimate reasons that people say that um, that they're not a regular exercisers. They don't have time. Well, I mean, you, you, you just made an, an excellent point with regard to screen time, right? Uh, you know, take 30 of those minutes of screen time and turn them into 30 minutes of walking in your neighborhood. And next thing you know, uh, you're, you're a regular exerciser and then exactly. there, and therefore enjoy all of the benefits of regular exercise. Jim, you've, you've been, you've been involved in athletics and fitness for, for, for many, many, many years. Um, and so you have, you really have some unique perspective, uh, on these things. Um, one of the things that you shared with me before the podcast was, uh, uh, was, uh, was your, your top 10 tips for lifelong fitness. You called them Grambo's top 10 tips, uh, for lifelong fitness. Uh, <laughs> those of us that know you well, <laughs> oftentimes referred to you as Grambo, by the way, before we get into your, cause I, I want to go over your, your list of, of top 10 tips for lifelong fitness. Uh, but, but before we do that, I, you, you, you got to tell me how you came up, how, how you came about with the nickname of Grambo. I, I, I'm happy to say I did not come up with that name. Um, but I, I worked at the Concord monitor newspaper and, um, when uh, the newspaper goes to press, there's a lag time usually. So you would like hit the last button on the computer, you'd send it to a press room, and then you wait for the presses to roll. That process can take a half hour or so. And so um, most of the other reporters or editors would kind of, and you have to wait for the actual physical paper to come off the press to make sure there's no big gaffes, no, you know, there's no swear words in the headlines, <laughs> things like that. But you know, you just want to make sure everything is coming out okay. So most of the people there would, would just sit around and, and talk or whatever. Uh, it's a long day. I would go out. They had a three-mile route, and at that time, I'd do about seven-minute miles. So I'd, I'd go out and ride twenty-one minutes, and I would come back in. And that would like those are really long days when I was was I was an editor. It might be a twelve-hour shift, and that would be my only exercise. And the people there thought I was crazy, you know, like he's going out to run 
it's like 11 o'clock at night. We're waiting for the paper. And he's going out to run around the, and you're running three miles. And like, he's insane. He's an, he's like Rambo. And so somebody said, he's Rambo. And that's how the <laughs> name came about. Okay. So it's the, it's the old version of, it's the gray haired version of Rambo. I like yeah. that. Okay. I like that. That gives me, it's really that, funny. Gives me some... you know, and so trying to say like, look, three miles is not a big deal guys for them. They thought, you know, it was like, crazy amount of, of, of discipline and really hard works yeah it's a, it, well it's it's all relative all right so let's let's go let, let let's go through your your top 10 tips for uh lifelong fitness uh and i uh i <laughs> i may I, I may interject here because uh you know here and again because uh you know you you, you and i um uh, we're 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 in the same generation so we yeah. probably share some some of these same philosophies so uh your first you know what um, let's go, let's go 10 to one. That'll be fun. Let, let's okay. go the other way. Okay. So we'll start with okay. number 10. So, and, uh, Grambo's number 10 tip. Well, I'll, I'll back, read it. I'll read just, it. Go ahead. I'll back up just a little bit. So when you asked me to um, come on this podcast, I was, it's funny. I really don't think of myself as 62 or having been around or done really all that much. And so it made me think, look back and go, Oh, I guess I actually have been doing this a while. And um, I've seen some real ups and downs, you know, I've had four knee surgeries, I've had some illnesses, you know, family issues, you know, like anybody, setbacks, um, job stresses and long hours and all those things. And so how have I kept with it? And one of the things I've, I've learned, so I think you asked me to be on this maybe two, three weeks ago. So when I've been walking in the morning, just been thinking about, well, what have I learned? And so these are the top 10. So so 10 is, I wrote the real victory is lining up and, and racing. It's unwrapping a gift you've given yourself. So um, I remember lining up at a Boston Marathon one year and um, I was pretty sure I was, I was in sub three hour shape. I ended up not, I ran a 302, but um, I had done everything I possibly could to get ready for that race. I mean, diet, you know, doing core i was following a training program pretty religiously and i've gotten my miles up as much as my my uh this is post knee surgery so I, I was getting a lot of quality work out of relatively low miles but i i had run some uh, prep races before that and I, I knew i was in great shape and i lined up thinking like that was probably the most emotional moment of that whole weekend in Boston was putting that number on and lining up and being, this is the victory. I, I got here, you know, I ran through the 33 degree pouring rain and the crappy icy roads at, you know, when it was negative something in the morning and through the wind and I got my running shoes on when I was dead tired from work and I'm lining up that that's the victory. The rest of this, is going to be a 26 mile party and i'm on i'm going to be unwrapping that gift i gave myself and i want to be careful about how i unwrap it of course i'm not just going to tear it open but i'm going to be pretty damn smart about how i run this thing and i really felt like when that gun went off i i won already it may seem kind of corny but that's 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 a, i think it's a great mindset to start to, to look at your races it it's really is the journey and it's getting there. You line up, you've made it, you know? Yeah. I think it's, uh, I mean, just, to, just to use the Boston marathon as, as a, as a quick example, which, you know, which just recently happened. Um, I'm sure uh, you like me, when I, 
um, and I scroll through my social media feed on um, on Patriots Day, right? And I see all my friends who have, you know, who are posting photos of them at the finish line at the Boston Marathon. To me, quite honestly, running 26.2 miles isn't, isn't all that impressive. You know what's impressive to me? It's the four months of preparation that it took those people to get to the starting line, right? Yeah. And uh, I mean, I think it's very easy for the casual observer to miss that. Right? Those of us yeah. like, like you and I, who, who understand the process, what it takes to prepare for these things. I truly, I, I couldn't agree with you more on number 10. Jim, give me number nine. What's your number right. nine? The number nine is enthusiasm beats talent. And then I put in parentheses mostly. <laughs> there, and, but this is especially true as, as you get older. Um, you know, if you're a younger athlete and you're doing any type of racing or competition, you're going to have a certain peer group around you in your age. You know, maybe you'll be going for age group prizes in your 30s. Um, I think about the people I know who are still doing any sport, not just running, Nordic skiing, biking, whatever. Kayak, I got into sea kayak racing for a few years. The people who are still doing it, are doing it weren't always like, the, the people who are always on the podium, the people really love what they do and are really enthusiasm about other people doing what they do. They're not the people who tended to be all about their own results and, and that that defined that their time or their podium or their KOM define their day. The, the people who are staying with it truly love what they do. You know, when people ask me, because uh, they know I'm, I'm fit. And like I said, I don't talk about it a lot at work, but people will say like, well, how do you stay thin? Or how do you do this? You know, so find something you really like to do. You know, you'll see lots of exercise equipment out there and programs and there's Peloton and now there's Tonal and there's going to be some other gizmo. If you really like doing that, you'll stick with it. But don't buy one of those things or get into some program if you don't enjoy it. Find something you like. Could be ballroom dancing. Just love what you do. Yeah, I think uh, for number nine, to me, really speaks to the fact that the finish order is not directly correlated to the level of enjoyment. Right. right? Just, yeah. just because you're finishing at the top of the podium, that, that doesn't mean that you enjoy the race 100 times more than the person that finished 100, right? To your point, uh, it, it, it is about – it's a – it's about it's about what you walk away from from the event with. It's not just the medal that hangs around your neck. Again, that person that finished dead last may have had the most amazing race for them. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I think. Uh, I, yeah, for twenty something years, I, I watched the Boston Marathon as a spectator from the same corner, same group of guys, and the people who are most inspiring are the ones who are coming by, you know, four four and a half hours, and they've got a T-shirt on that says something like. You know, they're from Minnesota or Alaska. And you're like, God, that guy trained through the winter. That woman, boy, she she went through all that whatever, you know, winter, terrible, and made it all the way here and is finishing. They're having a, a rough day, but they're doing it. And, boy, those people are really inspiring. Now, no, no, number eight, uh, when you read it, uh, um, all of my athletes are going to think you ripped me off here. So go oh. ahead, go ahead and give me your number eight. Top Maybe this is like the mind meld you gave me. Uh, be, so number eight is pretty simple. Be curious, ask questions. Um, you know, and, and that's of everybody. Um, you know, when I'm, when I'm 
riding, let's say, a gravel event, or I'm, or I'm running a, a longer race where it's it's you, you can actually you know maybe it's longer and you can actually talk a little bit. I'll, I'll ask somebody, how do you like those shoes? How do you like your bike? What do you have for gears on that? Um, you know, do you mind if I ask what you're running your, your tire? What kind of tires you have? Um, it can be, what do you have? What do you what do you do for fuel? Um, simple things like that. Or how do you keep from getting injured? You know, um, boy, if I notice that somebody's lost weight, how did you lose weight? Um, and kept and kept their energy up. I'm just curious. Um, this goes with reading too. In the morning, I get up real early and I'll have coffee and I'll just geek out on reading about everything from the greats to just you know simple advice on um, you know anything from gears, gearing, uh, uh, gear that that you might use. Um, uh, in the wintertime, I might be looking at wax, ski wax videos. <laughs> People at work laugh when I talk about that. Uh, but yeah, just be curious. Be curious about everybody. Uh, see what works for people. And then then I wrote in here, but listen only a little. Because you're going to run into some people who tell you some things. It's, you'll just like nod your head and say, okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, so for my athletes that are listening to this podcast, um, but, but, but listen very closely to, to your coach. So it, so yeah. the, the reason I, the reason I, 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 I mentioned that, that my athletes will think you ripped me off there with number eight, that is be curious. Um, I only have four goals, four things, goals, four expectations of my athletes when they race. I only expect four things, be focused, yeah. be tenacious, be grateful. And number four, be curious. Okay. Except in this case, the, 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 the curiosity is a little bit different, right? Um, uh, you, you described, um, learning from, right. From your environment, asking questions. Okay. I like that too. But for my athletes, uh, curiosity is, is applied a little bit differently. What I want my athletes to do is, um, well, a couple things. I want them within the, within the experience themselves to at some point ask themselves, what more do I have to give? Yeah. Okay. And then the other way that we apply curiosity um, is in after the event. I always encourage my athletes uh, to write a race recap more as a, as a download, mm -hmm. uh, right, of, 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 of the experience. And then, and then as part of that race recap, I always encourage them to list lessons or affirmations. So things that they learned or things that they affirmed. Every experience, every racing experience is an opportunity for growth, but growth only occurs as a result of learning. And the only way you learn, Jim, is if you're curious. Jim, number seven. Seven, uh, mix it up um, and, and do what you suck at or hate because sameness equals injury. This is especially true as you get older. Um, we sometimes, with my friends who are also older, or, you know, athletes, uh, runners, some former runners, you know, we, we kind of joke that when we're in our 20s, even 30s, if you're a serious runner and you do marathons, you can do a couple of sit-ups and push-ups every once in a while and you're fine. You're good to go. <laughs> um, and now I, I feel like for every minute I want to run, I need to do a minute of physical therapy, core, uh, some type of strength work. Um, and you, you'll especially, if you stay in any sport, People who do the same sport and same motion over and over are going to get overuse injuries. Um, it's rare that you don't find a roadrunner. It's rare to find a roadrunner who hasn't been injured um, from overuse, putting in long, 
lots and lots of money. Um, you might be going side to side. The distance of your stride is a little bit different. Uh, you might be heel striking, midfoot, toe, bounding over a stream. That's going to help your whole lower body and your carriage. Um, when I say do what you suck at, you know, or what you don't like, um, I don't particularly love lifting. But if I don't do it, I know I'm going to get I'm going to get injured. I'm not going to be as strong up there. Um, I'll tell you what. I, I recently did a gravel race. Uh, I think it was three weeks ago. Pat's Peak, pretty tough course. The last part was on snow on, on the ski area. And everybody's wiping out. I wiped out three times in there. I didn't get hurt. I'm 62. I bounced up and I felt fine. I was really proud that I, people around me were swearing and I was not happy to be falling in the mush, but um, I don't get hurt when I fall. And a lot of that is from just really being mindful about doing those strength exercises that I don't particularly love, but they keep me going. Um, yeah. I mean, I, when, when I think of, when I think of your number seven, mix it up, I think of sustainability and durability, right. Um, in, in my experience, um, endurance athletes who have a secondary pursuit, that is runners who have a bike or cyclists yeah. that don't mind running, um, by far, uh, have a greater chance of sustainability with respect to that, 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 primary activity pursuit than, than, than athletes that are sole or singular in focus. And then in terms of durability, right? Yeah. Strength work, uh, yeah. mobility work, flexibility work, that's about durability. And of course there's a direct relationship between durability and sustainability, right? Exactly. Um, so I, 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 I love, I love number seven. I'm curious about number six though. What, give, give me, give me, give me numbers, <laughs> give me number six. This sounds well, really I, dramatic, I, but, I, um, Prepare to survive, and I'm surprised you didn't know that you actually inspired this one. Um, although I followed this, uh, I prepared myself to survive, and then I wrote, but not too much. So um, I followed you on Instagram, and, and you've gotten into bushcraft and, and, and woodcraft, kind of learning how to you know, start fires out in the woods and, and um, be self-sufficient. Um, when I go on a long... Well, no, not even a long hike. When I go even a mile from the road, I like to think what What would happen if you broke a leg or ankle or you've had a bad fall? Could you survive overnight? Do you have enough stuff with you to make it? Um, you know, some of the scariest, one of the scary, I was telling my kids about this last night, one of the scariest, uh, Probably the most dangerous things I ever did was actually really simple. It was a routine ski after work when I lived in Jackson. I went and did a loop called the East Pasture Loop. It's about a 10K loop up, up behind Black Mountain. Uh, but I went out at maybe nine at night. It was dark. Nobody knew where I was. Uh, I had a headlamp with um, rechargeable batteries and NICAD. So it, those batteries tend to die. They die really, really fast. Like <laughs> you get maybe a minute and then they're out. So I, uh, and this loop is, you know, probably 5K uphill and then 5K pretty fun downhill. Um, so I got it to the very top and my ski binding broke. And the snow was maybe three feet deep, um, right up to my waist. Um, I got, I tried to get off my skis and I thought, well, I'll see if I can fix it. And I sunk in, I could barely move. Um, I had the hardest time getting my um, foot back up on my, my bad ski. And um, it struck me like, boy, I could die out here. I'm I'm three miles from the road on a trail I do all the time. I could die. It was it was like 10 below zero. Beautiful night, you know, 
moon was out, no wind at all. So it was cold, but it was comfortable, I guess. You know, I was warm enough, but I didn't have enough stuff to survive, really. And thank God I got out, but it, it, could I have built a fire? Um, I still ski at night, and I now carry in my uh, my drink belt, my fanny pack, a little um, fire stick, a little magnesium stick with a striker, or sometimes I'll take matches, and then I'll bring like um, just like a cotton ball dipped in uh, uh, petroleum jelly, something like that, and and and, and wrapped up in a little piece of tin foil. So, and can I start a fire if I'm out there? So, um, I'd like to ski at Green Woodlands where it's a place up in Dorchester where you can be you know, pretty far from anybody. And I'll ski up there after work with a headlamp on a Waterville Valley. And I think, okay, can I at least, do I have enough stuff to spend the night? Might not be comfortable. And for me, that's mostly, can I start a fire? Um, you'll see also people who take enough stuff to live out in the woods for weeks. You don't want to, it's always a balance between how much do you take to, to, rescue yourself and and do take so much stuff that it you know weighs you down and and takes away from your experience so i would just say you know be prepared out there take your cell phone with you i know that's not super popular with a lot of people but you know what are you going to do if, if things go wrong just just think about it really um well, you know, it's, we all, yeah, we I mean, it's interesting. Time prepared, you know? Yeah, it, it, it's interesting that there are two different groups of people recreating in the same environment that have two totally different approaches. You know, there's the there's the there's the heavy and slow approach and there's a light and fast slow. Right. So the hiking community um, uh, and I'm going to paint with a broad brush here, but the hiking community is the is the heavy and slow. Right. As hikers. Right. Hikers pack. If you're if you're well prepared, you've got you've got gear to overnight if you have to. Right. And and, uh, you know, you've got more water and food than you probably need. And 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 and, you know, 99 times out of 100, you will carry things that you will never use. But right. it's better to have them and, and 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 not use them that need them and not and not have them. And and yet in the same environment is the trail running community and the trail running community is all about light and fast. Cause you're for out in a, if you're out on a trail run, you don't want to carry a 20 pound pack. Right. Okay. Um, and so, um, <laughs> hikers, right. Are obviously th their exposure is pretty high now they, because they're out there much longer, right now they've got the gear obviously, but, but their exposure is much greater. If only from a time perspective, trail runners on the other hand, aren't out nearly as long. And I say nearly, let's say average. Yeah. They're not nearly, they're not out there nearly as long. So their, their time exposure is, is less. Um, but, uh, but their chances of survival in the event that they had to overnight is, is much greater. So I, I think, I think, I think trail runners can learn a lot from day hikers. Like, and, and in fact, in fact, this conversation is inspiring me uh, to, to develop like an essential trail runner, uh, you know, gear list, like minimal essential. Um, right. <laughs> that's, that's an entirely additional podcast. Uh, number, number five, I think anyone who has, anyone who has been, been in, in the sport of endurance racing long enough has experienced number five. Yeah. But give See, me your number five. Number five, uh, finishing uh, dead last in a race or close to it is good for you. Uh, it'll build character, uh, even if you do it on purpose, and I have done this a few times where uh, there have been maybe like a charity 5K that I'm not particularly, you know, I'm not really racing. Um, 
and I just really want to hop in. I've done some of those races where I've intentionally been way at the back. And boy, you get a lot of respect for people who are working their damnedest to just finish. I, I love seeing people who may, might be like walk jogging or maybe they're just trying not to walk at all. And they might be going 11 minute, 12 minute mile. And uh, it's, you know, you talk to them, you hear their stories. It's amazing. Some of them have overcome, you know, major challenges and they're out there plugging along. It's great. You also get, um, you know, if you're a good athlete, you know, you're used to finishing races and seeing people way at the back finishing an hour after you. And it's easy, especially when you're very good to think, man, you know, that person didn't train or wow, that's how could they even do that? They're taking so long. When you're back there, you understand that some of these people are, they're working their butts off. In fact, they're working probably harder than you because they're out there a lot longer and the effort they're putting in is huge. Um, you also get, get respect for the race volunteers who have to uh, stick around. I was dead last at a Eastern Cup uh, cross-country ski race probably five years ago. It was a sprint. I didn't know anything about, maybe six years ago. But anyway, I didn't know anything about Eastern Cups really. I mean, I, I knew they happened, but they tend to attract the best college racers and high school racers in New England. And some of these kids are going to be future Olympians. It's no doubt about it. And I, I wrote the director a note and said, it says that anybody is open can do this. You know, I'm, I'm 50, whatever, six years old or something. Um, is it, you know, are they open? And he, the guy wrote back and said, sure, it's open to anybody. In fact, we want more people of all age groups to do this. The, the next youngest person was like 32 years younger than me. <laughs> and I got the, the hand clap of pity coming down the finishing stretch. People were literally waiting to, to roll up the finishing banner. They were waiting for me. And uh, it, it gave me respect for what that must feel like. For you know, a lot of people who are there all the time. So it's yeah, great. And what a what and what a what a great exercise for yeah. us um in um uh in putting our ego aside and letting our our higher self shine through. It's something that something that we my athletes uh, and I work on all the time. Yeah. Um uh Number four is 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 kind of intriguing to yeah. me because I'm not sure that number four necessarily applies to me all the time. Um, but I'm curious what number four means to you. So you're always race fit, um, especially as you get older. You're going to have peers who you've raced with for years or known or who are around you. You know, people you've always tried to beat or always beaten you. But, you know, you're going to be around um, people you're going to. You know, you're going to rise through kind of the, the cycle of races and seasons and sports. And um, as people start to get older, you know, they slow down. And I have a lot of friends my age who won't race anymore because, oh, I'm too slow. Oh, I'm not ready. Oh, I'm waiting for this big, you know, I have this one race I'm going to do next fall. That's the thing I'm really pointing to. Um, I would say, you know, if you put a number on, you're 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 ready to race even if you're you go really slow and you're not in super great shape put a number on get out there have fun i i this i did a gravel race three weeks ago i knew i was not in great shape it was my second outdoor road ride of the year 40 miles five thousand vertical feet i knew i'd be at the back i didn't on purpose did not bury myself i had a ball had a great time um 
it was a, a good and much needed motivating kick in the butt because there were certainly hills where I thought, oh, come on, I, you know, I should be able to make it up that. And I was walking up some of the hills. Um, but I put a number on, you know, um, that was much better motivation for me than just doing another long ride by myself. So um, I, I know some people who are actually very good skiers, particularly mountain bikers who, who won't race because they're worried about being slow or they're worried that they're waiting for that perfect day. You know, yeah, you know, I, I you wait for things, they sell them more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what comes to mind for me is, um, it, it, it's, it's really a, an excellent illustration of, uh, of, of self limiting thinking. You know, I, when, 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 when I ask my athletes to set goals, we talk about, um, really there being two types of goals, performance based goals and process based goals. Now, most athletes, most athletes, most athletes are completely unaware of the concept of process-based goals because as athletes, we're performance-based, right? Uh, the fact is there's a person with a stopwatch at the beginning of the race and a person with a stopwatch at the end of the race. And then after the race, the race director lists results, right? So it's about time and it's about finish place. Um, and so as endurance athletes, totally makes sense. We are conditioned to performance being the only reason that we would participate. And so it, so it makes completely it makes complete sense to me that for folks that don't feel like they are in performance shape in other words they are in peak performance shape that they would they would that they would pass on a race experience and yet the truth is that um process-based goals are just as legitimate as performance-based goals i'll give you a quick example i'm sure that i i think you caught it i think you you caught it a couple of days ago i had a client run the Boston Marathon a few days ago. Yeah. Um, and it was a C, C as in cupcake, a C priority, you know, figuratively speaking too, a C priority event. A, a events are, are the events that we're, we're specifically preparing for. B events support our A races. C, I, I allow my athletes to have C events, right? Um, so long as they don't, they don't interrupt or interfere the preparation for the A, for the A event. Now there are, there are zero yeah. performance-based expectations for C priority events. Literally they are in quotation fingers done for fun. Now, yeah. a lot of people wouldn't understand the concept of running the Boston marathon for quote unquote fun. But the <laughs> truth is this particular athlete, the Boston marathon is her, it was, it was a C race because she's got her A marathon coming up. Uh, in a couple of weeks. Well, she went into that Boston Marathon with zero performance-based expectations. She didn't have a time goal. She didn't have a finish goal. She didn't have a uh, she didn't have a pace goal. She just wanted to have the most amazing experience that she possibly could have. And you know what, Jim? Not only did she have an amazing experience and and smiled ear to ear the entire way, she also ran her fastest Boston Marathon and her second fastest marathon yeah, overall with yeah. processed based goals exclusively. I, I, I love, I saw that post and I absolutely loved it. Um, the whole, um, sense of her relaxing, um, still hammering out a PR, which is amazing. What, one thing I found over the years is doing lots and lots of races. Well, and I love your, the way you, you, tell your athletes about the A, B, and C goal. And I, I guess without really thinking about it in those terms, I've done the same thing. It doesn't, I still have some big goal races, you know, next year's Berkey. I can tell you that's a big goal for me. Um, 
the Vermont uh, 50 and, and Vermont Overland. Those are going to be really big goals for me. Um, the race I'm doing Saturday, not so much. But but lining up for races like that, it, it allows you to check all your systems. For first, just physically, you know, if I'm working on my bike, knowing my, my bike a little better, it it's learning how to fuel. It's learning how to think when I'm out there. I'm thinking all the time about my race. How do I feel? What if I picked it up a little bit? What if I back off? Can I? Is this effort about where I should be? Um, you know, those practicing those in races that aren't critical is going to make it so much more relaxing and satisfying for you when you do hit the big day. Uh, it's not going to be a brand new experience to you. No, uh, th- th- there's no question. And in fact, y- you know this to be true that um, that your peak performances are as a result of your of your flawless process right so right. it's it's in, in, inevitably it's all about the process well yeah. your your number 3 top 10 tip i think my dogs uh, would 100% agree with you about number 3 jim what's your yeah. number 3 this is record your activities tip? and um, this was a big big change for me maybe 5 years ago Six years ago, I was working, uh, well, I, I still work at UNH, but in those, I've worked mostly remote now. So in those days, I was commuting from Concord to UNH. My kids were still, you know, relatively young, middle school, uh, yeah, maybe elementary school. So maybe it's maybe six, seven years ago. Um, and I, you know, it was hard with, with the demands of the job and then getting home and um, helping around the house and kids. It was really hard to get workout time in. And I started to just take days off and it wasn't really out of any plan. It was just, I would take, Oh, I don't have time. And I started, um, I think it was Jeff Litchfield got, he's a very good masters, uh, athlete my age. Um, he, he, and his kids were, you know, they were out of the house, but he's like, why don't you just keep a, keep a training on, even if you're not trained. And I, I started and, what got me motivated was not the days where I did really, I could still go and do some big days, but it was seeing like three days in a row of zero. And I would tell myself, you know, come on, Jimbo, could you, could you have gone out for a 10 minute walk at lunch? Did you have to sit in the lunchroom and gab with people? Could you have just said, Hey, let's go for a walk around campus. And so my rule became, I, I write down anything of 10 minutes or more. And, um, and I still do it. I do a lot more exercise than that. But, but for me, that has seemed to work. So just writing down what I do, and it's not that I'm, I go back and look at it, or my, this is my rag sheet or my bucket list. So I got that done today. It's a lot of the, it's those days we do zero where you say, could it, could I have done something? Could I have gone for a walk around the block? It's not much, but it's something. I think I, I told you earlier, you know, with my dog, I started walking here in the morning when she's the puppy. Well, now we've walked 4,000 miles in the past five years, 4,000. And, yeah, and this, that's in addition to everything else I'm doing. So yeah, you know, this, I just write down. And, and sometimes my more serious athletes, friends will be like, why do you write down that 10 minute walk? And that's exactly why it, it does add up. It all counts, you know, and this, yeah. this concept was, was actually something that I promoted uh, when I worked in the clinical setting, as I was, again, told you, I was trying to, I was trying to convince people that physical activity was something important, you know, exercise is, is esoteric, right? right? It's like, it's not yeah. tangible, 
Okay. Uh, but you can make it tangible. And so one of the things that I would suggest is that people start a rubber band ball. Okay. So oh, yeah. every day that you log, every day that Grambo logs 10 minutes, he puts, uh, an, he puts a rubber band around another rubber band. Yeah, and yeah. That rubber band around another rubber band becomes a, eventually becomes a rubber band ball. And what starts as a small little marble size ball of rubber bands with enough consistency um, becomes the size of a basketball and eventually the size of a beach ball. And you can kind of understand the analogy that, um, and it, and so in that way, by keeping that little rubber band ball on your desk, um, you, there's, there, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's sort of a tangible sense of accomplishment that's right. associated with creating this, this routine active lifestyle. Otherwise, you know, what, what's, the, what's the expression? Out of sight, out of mind, right? If you don't see it, it's, it's easy to skip it. Right. And, and I think the thing about Strava, there is a little bit of accountability there. You know, I, I let anybody who wants it, I don't particularly, I don't get too wound up about it. But I do put those down. And I have had people ask why I put down these short little things that are just walks around the block. And um, like I say, 4,000 miles, <laughs> you know, it adds up. And that's, I think, been a it, big, it's great for my mental health. It, 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 I think it adds to my total endurance doing really low level stuff like that. It keeps you fluid. And inevitably, a 10-minute walk some days is really slow amble. Other days, I, I'm walking really fast, or I turn it into a 20-minute walk or 30 minutes. So, so yeah, uh, just, write, just writing it down is a, is, is a great habit to get into. Num number number two, um, yes. I, I couldn't agree as a professional endurance coach. I could not agree with number two more. Oh, good. Yeah, this is a stick to a training plan, but but only a little. Um, in um, Chris and I were going back and forth about what we would talk about tonight and what training plans worked for me. So post knee surgery, I couldn't run every day. And the, the one training plan that really worked for me the best was, the, was the Daniel's running formula. And what he this is really, really oh, maybe oversimplifying it, but basically what, what I loved, it wasn't a prescribed seven day a week plan where Monday you would do this and Tuesday you would do that. Um, because uh, what, what he realized, what he said is, look, you, you have about two or three real focus workouts you're going to do a week. Focus on getting those in. Don't worry about which particular day you're going to do them. Um, if it you know, it was crappy weather one day and you want to move your long run to another day, fine. You're too busy with work and you need to skip a day, skip one of your easy days, those, those other four days a week that, that are, are not as focused. And by the way, if you have a really busy week of work or family obligation, whatever, um, and you don't get in those three workouts, don't worry about it. Don't just look, you're looking at the 12 week pattern or whatever it is, a 16 week, eight week pattern. So don't sweat the one or two workouts that you're, that you miss. Um, but it, you do have to have some type of a plan and some goal. So if I only get in my long run and maybe, some strength session in a, in a week or my long ride, that's okay. I've at least got the two key pieces I want. Um, so, so don't, I, I see people too many times, whether it's weight loss program, a new sport, going to the gym, you know, everybody goes here after um, for new year's resolutions. Um, they're too ambitious and they don't give them time themselves wiggle room to, to 
you know, skip a day, take the time off, you know, give themselves a break, do something else, go to a movie, go out to dinner. It's okay. Um, so it, you do have to have a plan. It does help to write things down, but don't get so wedded to it that it feels like a personal defeat. If you, if you well, I, I, I think that the key to sticking with a training plan is not to always be in a training plan. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so I, I always organize my athletes' training as either uh, a general activity phase or an event-specific training camp. Yeah. So when my athletes are preparing for an event, they're typically they're typically never preparing for an event specifically for more than four, for more than sixteen weeks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then and then you then you come off of a training plan. So in fact, I I don't I don't I don't describe what they're doing. 12 months out of the year as training. In fact, I'm very sensitive to not describe it as training. Um, when you're not in an event specific training camp, you're not training Jim, you are in a general activity phase. Right. And it's much easier to stick to a general activity phase than to think that I'm training 12 months out of the year. Cause frankly, you shouldn't be training 12 months out of the year. I would. Yeah. I guess I just use it as different terminology. I tend to think of like, okay, this month will be a a day. Um, April, uh, March, March to April, right around now is really kind of like a, a downtime. Don't really, I'm not really following any plan. I'm doing what I feel like doing. I'm learning to just enjoy being out there again. Um, things like that, but yeah, yeah. I'm to- totally with you. Yeah. Um, and, uh, well, <laughs> no, number one, what a, what a great, what a great place to finish. Yeah. Have a goal, uh, have goals, but have a goal after your goal. I distinctly remember a few Boston marathons for, so for about four or five years, it was a big focus for me. Um, and I would get done with the marathon, uh, and then, Boy, it would be really hard getting going again. Um, you almost get depressed. You're, you know, you're you're training for months, um, oftentimes by yourself. You know, it's 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 really hard. It takes a lot of energy. You're going to be tired at work. You're going to be, you know, getting up and going out the door when everybody else is sleeping in. You're going to be skipping those TV shows that everybody else is talking about. It's a lot of you know a lot of sacrifice, a lot of work, and and it's tiring. And then you know you hit the big day. You nail your your goal, hopefully, and then and then what? And I found myself having these very kind of nebulous goals after Boston of like, well, maybe I'll do Mount Washington, or maybe I'll start doing, maybe I'll do this. I, I found what worked for me was to have another goal. The part of that goal might be two weeks after Boston, I'm doing zero, nothing. I might walk. That's going to be it. But then um, May fifteenth. I'm going to start running again and I'm going to do Mount Washington or I'm going to get ready for, I don't know, the, uh, a 5k PR in, in August. Um, and I'm going to start hitting the track in, in May. Um, so I, 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 I try to, I think that helps keep you hungry. So many people, especially nowadays, like, I, like you know me, Chris, I don't like the idea of a bucket list because it, it, it conveys to me a sense of once you've checked the box, you're done. If, if this is really going to be a lifetime, a, a way of life for you, it's never really, you don't want it to be over. You know, you want to keep going. So your goals don't always have to be race goals. But once you do, you hit that big old marathon, Mount Washington, some big bike race, 
think about something else you want to do. Could be shorter, could be fun, could be a completely different sport. But say, wow, now I can relax and focus on five Ks, you know, you know, and and until August, and then I'll start working on the distance again. Um, so having some something like that to look forward to is always good. And also, if you don't have a good race, say, okay, well, my race didn't go good today. Now I'll get. I've got. I've already got another goal lined up, so I'll go for that. Yeah, you know, I, it, it's 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 such a it's such a good point, and it, you know, I, I I was sort of thinking that it, it it does get back to something that I had I had mentioned before, and that I, I really encourage my athletes to to journal after their race to to write a race recap, and 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 it actually really speaks to this to this point that by journaling by by doing a race recap, it it allows you the opportunity to turn three dots dot 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 into a period. Because once you put a period at the end of an event, in other words, you finish your race recap and you literally that last period yeah. is that that now gives you that that gives you the, the you're, you now have you've given yourself permission that you can move on. Yeah. You can move on to the next thing. And I think so often what happens with folks is they don't there's not a there's not a period at the end of, of the event. There's three dots, right. which means it's a to be continued. And they perseverate, and they and they emotionalize, and they 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 get they they get caught, and 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 they're not able to move forward. Um, and it, I, I think it becomes infinitely infinitely more difficult. So I, I really like that. And in fact, I I've talked about this before. Uh, th that that exact point that um, you know, once you put the period at the end of your, at the, at the end of your race recap, then, you know, what's the next thing now, you don't, to your point, you don't have to throw yourself headlong into it, but have, have a next thing because now that, that allows you to, that allows you to, rather than focus on what's happened behind you to begin to focus on not only what's in front of you, but gives you an opportunity to focus on where you are now. Right? Yeah. And, and I would encourage people to think about, a goal even outside of whatever sport was their, their big goal was in. So let's say it's a marathon. Um, I remember one year, my goal was to do a really long hike in Scotland. We were going over to see some relatives and boy, I put my heart and soul into researching where to go, where to stay, and what to bring. And um, it was like a whole new focus. It was really refreshing. Uh, another year I wanted to do the Prezi Traverse. I, I didn't time it, but I wanted to run it. And, you know, I started getting geeking out about that um and it was really fun so it was just something that you know it's kind of like you're reinventing yourself each time you go through an event get ready for something else otherwise before that i found a really kind of depressing time a few weeks after marathon you've put so much time and emotional energy into your event even if it goes super well like then what <laughs> you have to you have to be able to move on to something else yeah I, I mean i think i think so many of our friends uh who who just raced the boston marathon are probably experiencing that same thing jim yeah. this was this really was an amazing conversation yeah, uh, I, I, I i learned i really did uh learn so much in fact i'm gonna have to have you back on the show because because uh, a little bit of, a little bit of inside baseball here uh, you actually gave me a list of 33 of your of the, <laughs> yeah. your of your tips and tricks uh, uh, yeah. and and lessons for for sticking with exercise for a lifetime. So I think we've got 20 other uh, 23 yeah. other yeah. items to go yeah. over. But I tell you what, Jim, we'll we'll save that for another podcast. I I really appreciate you being on the show, and uh, I look forward to getting out for a gravel bike ride with you soon. 
Yeah, exactly. We'll have to uh, uh, set that up. And uh, yeah, always, always wonderful seeing you, Chris. You've made a big difference in my life and, and you know, touch lives of dozens and dozens of other people I know and run into. So that keeps going on. So congrats for doing that. And thank well, you. Well, thank again. Thanks again, Jim. And uh, let's get together soon. All right. Thank you, Chris. Have a good night. I told you that list was going to be great, didn't I? It's funny how many of those lessons we share, but just describe them a little bit differently. That conversation with Grambo was like nearly every conversation I've ever had with him. Insightful, interesting, and inspirational. His willingness to try new things is not only a big reason he's been able to consider himself an endurance athlete into his 60s, but it's also a valuable example for all of us. Well, if you liked what you heard, please consider giving the show a follow. And if you really liked what you heard, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn. So make sure to check that out. And lastly, remember, the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.